Have you ever wondered what the world would be like if dinosaurs never went extinct? Well, we're about to find out. Hello there and welcome to Magic by Design. We're taking another trip to prehistoric times this week with a review of Pixar's 16th animated feature, The Good Dinosaur, first released in 2015. But before we make our mark with another fine podcast, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Ken and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Lashbrother Garrett. Garrett, how are you? Hey, how are you doing? Pretty good. I notice you usually open with a quote from the movie. But this movie has so few quotes worth quoting that you didn't open with a quote from the movie. Well, sometimes it's a quote or it's a bit that's from the movie, but yeah. There is no bits or quotes from this movie worth quoting. It's mostly, ah! Yeah, you should have opened with, ah! Because that's Arlo's signature line, screaming. Yeah, like 50% of his dialogue is him screaming. 50% of the dialogue in the movie is him screaming. Possibly because it's cheaper could have less went for, dialogue less pay that's true you could have went for you're all of me and more Kara, are you all of me and more yes as as we i think we mentioned before on the podcast i'm the youngest of three sons so they kept trying until they got it right true and then they stopped perfection yeah done Kara, this is the second of two pixar films in 2015 after inside out which we talked about last week i did not watch this one in the cinema i watched it on christmas eve over a year later it might even be two years yeah i watched this with just one random night i was like i'm gonna finally watch a good dinosaur oh it's okay all right good to know that's that's all i ever needed to know it's fine the origins of the good dinosaur go as far back as 2009 when director Peter Son and co-writer Bob Peterson came up with the idea for the film. So Bob Peterson was primarily the driving force behind the idea for the film and was touted as director before he was booted later in production. Yeah, this this one got completely rebooted, didn't it? Yeah, so like a lot of the voice cast was thrown out and replaced. I think Francis McDormand was the only one that was retained. Because Jason Ritter was the lead at the first, wasn't he? It was Lucas Neff. Oh, Lucas Neff. I was thinking wrong show. Yeah, it's, it's Raising Hope Fellow. Yes. But yeah, they did a lot of changing of the script. Particularly, they couldn't figure out the third act, which is why Peterson left the project. <laughs> so they just didn't have an ending? Yeah. They were like, they keep wandering through and they finally get home and then something happens, I guess? We haven't worked out what. The creative team encountered several problems, which led to all these multiple revisions. So is it co- because the movie has nothing going on? Yeah, it's a very boring... It's not boring. I wouldn't say boring, but it's it's not eventful. Because yeah, we've seen various versions of this movie going all the way back to the Jungle Book. Alice in Wonderland even is kind of pretty much the same formula, where it's just somebody goes on an adventure, meets a cast of characters, ending. Yeah, we have elements of the Lion King in here, Brother Bear, heck, even Dinosaur. Yeah, there's even some Bolt, because yeah. Bolt is like that cross-country journey, wacky characters. It's the same idea, and... It just feels like the animated movie that comes from, we don't really know what we're doing, so let's just do a movie where someone goes on a journey, meets a bunch of characters, and then it ends. This film has to come out in a year and a half to two years. We've already messed about for about two years and and had to get rid of everything and start again. We still don't have an ending. We've thrown out the voice cast. We really need to get something out the door, even though we already have Inside Out coming out this year, but still, we just need to finish this project. So we'll just make a generic road movie. And that's what they did. A movie made by committee, which relies on the tropes of the past. Mm. I wonder if you watch this as your very, 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 very first animated film. Like, I don't think it's those tropes done particularly well. So I'm not sure how how hard it would hit if it was your first animated movie. But if you didn't like, oh, that's just The Lion King. Oh, that like stampeding water is basically the death of Mufasa. Oh, they even do the dad coming back, doing the remember who you are moment. Oh, good. And then you have a bunch of the jungle book and you have a bunch of Brother Bear. And even the voices of the vultures sounded like 
the voices of the moose and Brother Bear. Yeah, the making your mark is Brother Bear. As you said, Alice in Wonderland and the Jungle Book is meeting all the players, mm. you know, on a journey. But also, the vultures from the Jungle Book are identical to the pterodactyls in this. The disappointing thing, though, is that the concept for the film, which is what if dinosaurs never went extinct, is very much in the Pixar mold and interesting, worth exploring, but they didn't really do anything with it. Because they do a, mi- a-, a million year time jump, don't they? Millions, they said. Yeah, so like they do the thing where the meteor passes... And then millions of years pass, and then men are still like prehistoric Neanderthals, and dinosaurs are still dinosaurs. So yeah, they kind of flip it on its head. They're the... Do they, though? They, they try to. Like, the idea is like, oh, the dinosaurs act like people, and the people act like dogs. Like, that's that's the concept of this movie. Instead of like, there's probably a more interesting version where like humans continue to develop too, and dinosaurs are still there, and then you get the two clashes of those worlds in a more interesting and developed way, as opposed to like if this film was set literally moments after the meteor passed it would be the same thing yeah there's no development there there's none it's like the idea of what if the dinosaurs didn't go extinct doesn't really develop here it's just it's just the dinosaur world they talk i guess and they become farmers and ranch handlers yeah there's like two minutes of the, the start of the movie where they're like look at them developing skills and farming and then the rest of the film is just the dinosaur and his dog The Good Dinosaur was released in November 2015. The film garnered generally positive reviews from critics for its animation, though its storytelling was considered not to be up to the mark of previous Pixar efforts. The Good Dinosaur grossed 332.2 million on a budget of 175 to 200 million, making it Pixar's first ever box office bomb. If we are to go by the gross needing to be the budget plus 50% to break even, including marketing and promotion. Which means it probably did break even and it probably made a little bit of money between streaming and toys and all that stuff probably ticked into profitability these days because that's the thing the box office draw is still important but the pandemic has proven that it's not the only thing and now that disney have disney plus they kind of control their own destiny so i think they can be a bit more patient with projects in the sense that through all their different resources they will eventually become profitable but then there's the the question i think we've already asked before in this podcast of like what is you know it's very easy to say this film cost 175 to 200 million to make therefore when we release it and it makes that money back and more in the box office it's profitable that's very simple that's very straightforward you have money brought in money spent numbers streaming is a lot muddier it's like well how many new subscribers did we get okay how many of those were due to the good dinosaur who knows possibly none possibly none possibly all of them no they're like there there's no real and like and you can say like oh a bunch of people watched it but like if those people are existing subscribers what good is that to you if you're not bringing in new subscribers with content it's a lot like muddier and it's i i think it's going to lead to worse art over time or it's people will make like netflix in particular are like a shadow of themselves in terms of the content they produce just throwing a lot at the wall and seeing what sticks, aren't they? Like 95% of their content is like true crime rubbish or like a brainless YA show, you know? Or reality cooking shows. Or reality problem. cooking shows, yeah. Like, like they've really moved out of making good television. Every so often they'll drop something good, but it's like a show or two a year now instead of like a consistent cadence of like some of the best content you'll see. And I think that's like our algorithm is driving us toward making empty brainless content in the same way like network TV did. Like that's what happened with network TV over time. When was the last network TV show you heard of? Never mind watched. Exactly. It's it's quantity over quality. Like we're in the 10th of October as we record this, which is usually about two weeks into the new television season, two or three weeks. And name me, Ken, a single new television show from the fall TV lineup. I cannot. And usually there's something there that I want to watch or I've heard of, but there's nothing. Yeah, usually there's like, uh, the only one I can tell you is Mr. Mayor. 
Oh, yes. Because I've seen an ad for it, and that's it. And that's it looks... Not that's not new, though. Is it new? Is that in season two? Season two or three. No, oh, no. God, that tells you how far I'm behind I am, then. That's the Ted Danson show, which looks absolutely atrocious, by the way. But also Ted Danson, so... Yeah, so he can carry it. But, yeah, so the only show I can name, basically, for, like, the last three years is Mr. Mayor, because they go towards, like, the lowest common denominator, pander to, like, mass audience and end up making generic art that appeals to nobody. And I think, I don't know how I've gotten off of this rent now, (laughs) based on streaming numbers. I do think that's where streaming is going to slowly take us, where, like, Netflix started as, like, we're going to get David Fincher and we're going to let him make his show, which that's where House of Cards came from. And, like, House of Cards, very good show, until Kevin Spacey had to go be an asshole. (laughs) Well, he did that over quite some time. That's true. He was an asshole. When the show started, too. But then they just slowly started making worse and worse TV. I refuse to watch Squid Game. I refuse. I will not buckle. That is astroturfing of the highest order. But the way they make the shows has this very similar discernible structure that makes you want to watch the next one and binge. That's their whole model now. But also makes, like, individual episodes completely forgettable. You know, you remember the Fly episode of Breaking Bad. You remember the Modern Warfare Paintball episode of Community. You remember distinct, iconic episodes of television shows. You've been watching Sex Education the last couple of weeks, Ken. What's your favourite episode of Sex Education? There's elements I like of episodes, but there's not standout episodes. Yeah, they're made to be this, like, mushy, watchable but forgettable thing. I think Netflix is just becoming background noise. Like, all of it's just becoming this, like, blob of entertainment that is vaguely watchable and attractive, but not memorable in the slightest. It's just mush. And I I think part of that is the fact that we binge it. So, like, I watched all of Midnight Mass, a show I did quite enjoy a lot. I I, I prefer both Hill House and Bly Manor in the Mike Flanagan Netflix TV joints. But Midnight Mass, very good, watched it. But, like, I binged that in two days. I watched four episodes, or three episodes, and then I watched four episodes. And is that a good TV watching experience? It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, because binging became a cultural norm Mm -hmm. and that's why netflix went in that direction i don't think they went out to create that but once they realized that was the behavior that's what they aimed to create yeah and like to be fair to disney plus they don't binge watch you know their new new shows drop week by week so like loki week by week wandavision week by week the mandalorian week by week and i think because of that they own more of the cultural conversation fair enough their properties own the cultural conversation in the first place so it helps to have the thing everyone is talking about like star wars and marvel but the way they release those episodes week by week they do own the cultural conversation for much longer than netflix shows do which generally due to like the binge thing they burn bright and fast so and people a, couldn't tell you what they were about afterwards. You yeah, know, or... and there's the whole like spoiler culture around them because like when you drop all seven episodes of Midnight Mass at once, and there's this big thing at the end of the third or fourth episode, like you can't talk about that. It's spoilers. Whereas like when something airs week by week, when it airs, it's generally considered fair game. You know, it's like it's out. You've had your chance to watch it. I'm going to talk about how the fact that Captain America turned heel in. Captain or Captain America and the Winter Soldier no the other one Falcon and the Winter Soldier and he bashed some dude's head in and now he's a bad guy I'm going to talk about that because the episode's been out for a day you had your chance so like I I, I think day by week by week is much healthier in so many ways and I think it makes for better art I think it makes for better individual episodes because an episode has to stand on its feet a lot more than it would have you just like next episode you know if nothing in that episode engaged you there is nothing lost because just next episode you don't, you don't even have to do anything these days. They'll take you to the next episode. Oh, I hate it. I hate that too. Like, like I've, I've been watching movies on Netflix recently because I've been watching, because I watch Midnight Mass. I've been watching all of Mike Flanagan's movies. And like, so I like to sit 
at the credits. For, not for all films, but films that like I want to have a little ponder about. I like to just sit. But Netflix are like, let us play a trailer for Cheers. Yeah, we're going to play you this other thing. Oh, oh, autoplay, autoplay, autoplay. Let's keep you watching something. It's like, leave me alone and let me sit and think about this piece of art I just watched. Which I did, I did for the, like, to bring it all the way back around to The Good Dinosaur. Like, while we were setting up the podcast, because we, we did a, a watch and record, as we called it, because we literally just watched The Good Dinosaur. I, like, I sat there because like, the thing I like most about this film is the score. Yes. I think it's very nice. As I was sitting there just listening to the score play over the credits. And I was like, oh, that's very nice. And Disney didn't autoplay me anything. They didn't deliver me some dopey trailer. And they will eventually, you know, when you finish watching it, they will be like, hey, how about you watch Cars now, eh? Huh? As opposed to Netflix, it's like, you've watched three seconds of the credits now. It's time for us to serve you a trailer for something else. Or, in the case of television shows, go straight on to the next episode. Mm. And, as you said, even individual TV show episodes you want to ruminate on sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to sit and think about it. Because art is generally made, Ken, to be thought about, not just mindlessly consumed. And if it is being made to be mindlessly consumed, it's generally not very good art. If you can't tell... It's probably not enough time to talk about for the good dinosaur. So we'll, we'll go off <laughs> on a giant tangent about streaming. It's quite light. Anyway, Gar, I don't think even the toys could save this one from being a flop. It's interesting, though, having watched all these films back to back to date, that the signs were coming for this in the previous films in terms of the decreasing quality. Well, like, we had some real bangers. We had Inside Out. Yeah, but that was a jewel in a pile of coal. Yeah, so Pete Doctor just bailed them out. Yeah. The first thing we need to say about this is the animation is gorgeous in a lot of ways. The landscapes are pristine and beautiful to the point where it almost looks photorealistic. Now, that was a criticism in some ways, and I'll get into that. The animator said that wasn't a conscious choice to make it photorealistic. They just said that that was... That's such a humble brag, isn't it? It's like, we didn't mean to make it look so good. We're just so good at this that it looked amazing. They claimed it was the advances in technology plus creative choices, but I referenced this when we chatted about the advancements of Pixar's new animation system Presto brought to Brave and Monsters University in terms of rendering naturalistic landscapes. This is taken to a whole new level though, but it also jars rather irritatingly against the exaggerated caricature style of the characters. Yeah, like, this is the best looking Pixar film, but it's also a Pixar film that doesn't work visually. Which is a weird thing to say, because like this film is absolutely exceptional looking. Top to bottom. Like, every single landscape is gorgeous. You could freeze frame it and it would be a painting. Yeah, absolutely stunning. You could pull, like, a bunch of those frames and it's like, oh god. Like, you could you could do a gallery of freeze frames from all of the good dinosaur. Even, like, the, the as we mentioned, the the end credits. The, the like, first start of the part of the end credits with the director and the actors and all that. It's just a bunch of landscape shots. And just, like, like, flexing, getting the stuff in they couldn't get in the film. Yeah, remember how good our film looked? Yeah, that's the lasting impression we'll leave you. But as you mentioned... Everything about all of the characters in this movie doesn't work at all. It just completely jars against it, and it almost looks like green screened the way it's done sometimes. Yeah, Arlo just sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, and it's like he's, he doesn't look particularly good. Even uh, Spot doesn't look great, but he looks a little bit better, I guess. But yeah, the dinosaurs just look completely out of place in this world. And again, that kind of runs counter to the whole concept of the movie. It's like, what if dinosaurs didn't die? So like the idea is this should be the dinosaurs world. They should feel like in place here as opposed to... Pasted on top of it. Yeah, they look, they look pasted on top of it. So it's, it's very weird that they went for that concept, like meteor mist, dinosaurs live. But then the dinosaurs are the people who look most out of place in this dinosaur world, which doesn't really work for the story they told and doesn't really work just visually, even though this film is so pretty. I made one note for this entire film and it's just all caps, pretty. 
Yeah. From the very first moment, it's just exceptionally good looking. It's amazing. But in terms of animating Arlo, animators Rob Thompson and Kevin O'Hara went to a zoo and shot a video of elephants in motion. A system where Arlo's head goes up and his chest goes down when his hips go up was therefore created. So he's modelled after an elephant. You can kind of see that in his design. To get an idea of the scale of Arlo, a complete full-size model was built out of card and foam. Arlo is designed to look distinct and relatable in order to connect with audiences. I'm not a fan of the design. He looks too much like a toy. Like they're trying to create a toy to, for, to sell. It's like, it, it, and again, it just goes back to like, Arlo looks like a Pixar character, whereas yeah. the rest of this film doesn't. You know, it doesn't look like Toy Story. It doesn't look like Monsters, Inc., which are both very distinctly animated worlds. Like, Arlo is a distinctly animated character dropped in this beautiful photorealistic world. And that's just the reason it doesn't work. Because, like, it's not that Arlo looks wildly different from the characters Pixar created. That's not the problem. He looks the same as the characters Pixar have created, except the world they put him in doesn't. Arlo was designed so that audiences could identify with him and be able to see the boy inside the character. So I can see why they did that. You know, they're trying to have the audience relate with him. But I think you referenced it a few weeks ago. Just because you can make it look photorealistic doesn't mean that you should because it's an artistic choice. And if you're making the dinosaurs and the characters look more real, it makes sense. But in this case, you're sticking with the caricature. So the stylistic choice is the wrong one. Yeah, they had to do one of two things here. They had to make the dinosaurs look more realistic. Or they had to make the world look more animated and cartoony. And they didn't do either. And they just did the two jarring animation styles running against each other and looking weird. And again, they were like, we shouldn't be talking about this. Like, the film is so pretty. <laughs> the Good Dinosaur features three-dimensional volumetric clouds as well. In previous Pixar films, clouds would have been painted onto sets. Light and photography director Sharon Callahan described the storm clouds are almost like the villain in the film and appear in almost every scene. Callahan also noted that these particular clouds can be rendered and we can light them, which we've never been able to do properly before. So you you do get a sense of volume and reality from the clouds as well. And multiple times like they cut to the sky and you see the clouds covering the sun in a way that looks very organic and smooth and naturalistic and it's just like oh god you people are too good at this at this stage. Needless to say in total The Good Dinosaur took up 300 terabytes of server space 10 times as much as Monsters University only two years before. God that's and like we've been tracking the development of this new software which looked quite bad and brave honestly they didn't have the hang of it and Monsters University was more like and, and same with Inside Out was more like class Pixar, both very good-looking films in their own right, but you know they're they're doing that Pixar house animated style that's not as like boundary-pushing as this film ends up being, and. And again, they shot themselves in the foot by making their films so good looking. <laughs> yeah. This looks great, but why are you doing it this way when yeah. the characters look so cartoony? As again, it just goes back to like, it shouldn't be a negative that this film is so pretty, but it kind of is because it just doesn't feel consistent. And it's a, it's a shame that our biggest talking point about Pixar's objectively best looking film is how they bottled it. <laughs> <laughs> Since The Good Dinosaur is set in a world in which dinosaurs never became extinct, they instead were able to evolve. I would argue that they didn't show that enough. Herbivore is like, Arlo and his family become farmers and carnivores are like the T-Rex become ranchers. It's just like dinosaurs get people jobs. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) And like, again, like for a studio that's so well known for creating worlds and making everything make sense, these are, I think they're apatosaurs. They look like a stegosaurus. Mm. And a lot of the way they showed them farming made sense, but some of the stuff like how do they make the tools and like all those little questions just eat away at the credibility. Like you see the food store thing where they have a slide that goes in there and all that stuff. It's like, 
Don't you show me that fully developed. I want to see him building this. How did he get the rocks to balance? I suppose he could pick up rocks and lay them one on another. On another. Like the stand it's built on is like intricately designed. It's the Kairos problem. It's like when you see like the candelabra and a seed in cars, it's like, how did that get there? These cars don't have hands. Exactly. Neither do these dinosaurs. So how do they create these tools and buildings? Mm. But yeah, it's just, it's the, the Pixar disappointment, especially coming out of Inside Out, in which we, we just effusively praised for creating this whole wonderful, complete world. And then coming into The Good Dinosaur, where it's like just the basic questions about, well, if dinosaurs are the only thing, well, they're not the only thing is this. We know people are in this movie, but people live on the edges of this movie. Dinosaurs are the predominant characters in this world. It's like, well, how how does this work? And you shouldn't be asking those questions because that's that's not really the way Pixar works. Because usually when you're like, well, how does this work? Pixar will are like, aha, we've thought about it. Although, Gar, it does create one moment of humor in that the T-Rex ranchers run like they're on horses, but they're not. Oh, yeah, particularly the lead T-Rex. Just the way he has his back arched, but his hands out like a T-Rex and he's running very fast. I find that visual tremendously funny. Yeah, it's made to look like a horse gallop because obviously they don't have horses, but they run and traverse the land like they're on horses or they are horses. Mm. Very strange, but it looks very funny. It's the, is it the Sam Elliott one? Yes. Yeah, the Sam Elliott T-Rex. When you see him run, I, I just find it tremendously amusing. It's because his back is so straight while he's running and then you see the, like, the arch into the... It's, it's a good visual gag, even if I don't think it's entirely intended to be, but I found it tremendously funny. Moving into the story here, Gar, the film is meant to pay homage to the Western genre, like the butch character is supposed to look like Clint Eastwood or Jack Balance. Now, we can see that in the landscapes and some of the character representation, but... And the score... Yeah, but like they didn't go far enough into that either. So everything is a, a bit underbaked here. Yeah, and but in terms of the story, that feels like it feels underdeveloped. Uh, like all of this film feels underdeveloped. It's just like just get it over the line, you know. Just get it out the door. We've completely rebooted it. We have to finish it. So just get it out the door. So like the western stuff doesn't feel like it goes anywhere. It doesn't feel like a particularly interesting part of the movie. It doesn't feel like they have anything to say about it because this film has nothing to say in general, other than maybe fear is good, which is really counter to the point they told us in Monsters Inc. But. <laughs> To tell the story of how the film fell apart and why it might seem a bit cobbled together, in September 2013, The Good Dinosaur was pushed back from uh, May 30th, 2014, release date, to November 25th, 2015. According to producer Denise Reem, the primary reason for the rescheduling was because the story was not working, period. Full stop. They should have rescheduled it again then, shouldn't they? <laughs> it was just not where it needed to be. In November 2013, due to the delay, Pixar laid off 67 employees of its 1,200 workforce. Why? Because they had nothing for them to do, I guess. But surely if they delayed the movie, they should have more for them to do. Yeah, and that came on the heels of them closing the studio in Canada. Morale wasn't at an all-time high at this point. <laughs> That's probably why this movie stinks. It's like, I don't care. Let's let, let's send them out. Let's Actually, I, I, I'd like it if that's the case. Where it's like, you want to lay off the Canadian people? You want to lay off 80 people? We'll show you what that effect has, you know? Yeah, and as we know, like, John Lasseter was a bit of a dictator, and the person who originally conceived the film didn't finish it, so, like... Which isn't the first time. Like, same thing happened with Brave. So this is the second film in, what, three or four, where the first person who conceived the film, the original director, didn't finish the movie. And you can see the results because it's a hodgepodge of ideas and tropes. Because it's nobody's vision. That's what happens. It's always what happens when you take, like, an auteur director who has a vision who wants to make something. You get, like, halfway there, and you're like, I don't like it. So you tear it apart, and you end up making something generic and bland, 
that's just a piece to exist just so it can make some money potentially. In August 2014, John Lithgow, who was to play Arlo's father, revealed in an interview that the film had been completely dismantled and reimagined and he expected to re-record his role in the next month while mentioning that Francis McDormand, who was Arlo's mother, was still part of the film so he had recorded all his dialogue and they were like throw it out and then they just decided to throw him out too i always wonder how actors feel about that he goes like he got paid that's not how it's it's not the way it works that like he did the dialogue without being paid so like john lithgow did get paid for this movie but then everything he did for this movie was thrown out so like are you like i don't care i got paid or are you like god i really was into that character i'm sad that you killed him depends how invested you are i suppose in october 2014 peter son was announced as the new director of the film and further down the road so this was october and we're talking june 2015 it was announced that the majority of the cast had been revised as we said earlier mcdormand was the only person to come back so they had like older comedic actors to do the brother and sister Mm. they cut one of the brothers and sisters and they recast them so they went younger and maybe because of the western theme they went for a bunch of people who had that kind of accent and that kind of sound maybe that's why they did a bunch of the recasting because yeah. like the only way you really see the western theme here is like landscapes music and uh voice actors like the sam elliott is like the most western sounding actor you can possibly cast in a western movie so maybe that's the reason they did a bunch of the recasting to kind of recapture that sound but then they never really included that in the story it's just the boy and his dog going on an adventure in a western setting it doesn't really influence the film at all except maybe in the cattle rustling scene yeah it just very much feels like somebody being like what if we made this a western it's like okay How does that change anything? It's like, it doesn't? (laughs) Exactly. So my overall takeaway from this film was that like I've seen all this before. Mm -hmm. And as we said, whole sections are lifted. If you look at the scene before Arlo's father dies in a very reminiscent scene from The Lion King, Mm -hmm. they even do the whole bonding one-on-one thing in a field. Yep. Almost shot, and they run around the field as well. Shot for shot, almost like The Lion King. Yep. There's characters from The Jungle Book that you could literally transplant into this film uh it just seems like this happens when the the original creator is thrown out the movie becomes a movie by committee and they go like okay this worked here this worked there this worked over there let's put it all together and throw it out the door i think the major thing was i know we have the pterodactyl gang Mm -hmm. a pseudo cult pretending to help wounded animals after the storms to flush them out so that they may eat them but they're not really a villain they're more of an antagonist nature is meant to be the villain in this film I, i think it's the weaker for it because i get it and i know it follows them throughout the film and it creates some very foreboding and interesting looking scenes visually but i don't think it adds any tension or a sense of pace to the film you just wander through different scenarios and then there's a little bit of peril at the end and we go home essentially yeah i think if they did for the pterodactyls i think if they did make them like a really sinister feeling cult that like do come back at the end of the movie because like he does tell them where he lives which is the reason like they're there and they follow him but i think if they did actually lean into those being like really sinister feeling characters it probably would have been a better movie yeah they needed, it needed that villain it needed that threat i think that would have been quite similar to brother bear where we see them tracked they the have no shame in this movie ken it doesn't matter if it's the same as brother bear but yeah it would have been better if we saw them okay the initial encounter the heel turn then maybe one more scuffle along the way and they think that they're clear of them and they come back at the end they just show up as, as a plot obstacle in the end like yeah. Nothing more, nothing less. It's like, we don't have an ending, let's bring back the pterodactyls, you'll fight off the 
pterodactyls, you'll go off. Like, the one scene I think does work is the scene where they break up. But it's like, it's the, the, the again, the boy and his dog thing. It's like, go, I don't love you anymore, <laughs> that kind of thing. I do like that they did the work early in the film to explain their families to each other in a non-visual way. And, then... and those are the only two scenes, I think, in the movie that are good. Like, <laughs> the, the scene where they explain their trauma and tragedy with each other, and then the scene where they call back to that to tell them that, like, this is your new family now. I think both those scenes are very good and effective. And if they made a short that's just like them going on a little journey in those two scenes, I think it would be a very good short. But then it has the entire rest of it, which is just the most generic, empty, boy and his dog go on a road adventure movie. And it's there's nothing else there. You mentioned the film's score guard. This was done by Michael Dana and his brother Jeff, replacing Thomas Newman, who was originally attached to score the film when it was set to be directed by Peterson. It marks the first Pixar film to be scored by two composers. Dana was approached by Son due to his work on The Life of Pi, which won an Academy Award. He brought his brother on board because there was a lot of work involved and he had some other projects in the fire, so he needed help. His brother does not have a great filmography compared to him. (laughs) Yeah, so... He's co-composer of The Addams Family... Troll Hunters. He's done some Resident Evil movies. <laughs> as opposed to Michael Dana, who, as you mentioned, has won an Academy Award and a Golden Globe before a Life of Pi score. So he's tremendously accomplished. It strikes me that this film very much like Dinosaur, because like, I think the score was the only thing I enjoyed about that film, too. Mm. And yeah, as you said, there was some effective scenes there with the whole family scenario. But yeah, very nice score. Simple. And again, that leitmotif piece where a lot of it's quite the same but different cadences and instruments to change the feeling of it but it's a nice western score and who doesn't like a western score yeah you can't go wrong with a good western score it's just really enjoyable it's as i said listen to the credits i'm sure there's a credits like usually the the version of the song that played over the credits is part of the soundtrack just listen to that what's the word for a lot of songs put together medley medley there you go that medley of like the major themes from the movie and you'll you'll very much enjoy it and you don't have to spend 90 minutes of your life. You don't. You can just hear the very nice score or just literally skip straight to the credits and just watch the credits because the credits are... Then you'll actually get everything that's good in the movie. You'll get the lovely landscape shots that are very pretty and you'll get the lovely score. And there you go. You've gotten all of the important parts from The Good Dinosaur. Yeah, and that's a, that's not a really good thing to say about a, an animated movie. Like, Arlo's just not interesting, you know? He's a scaredy cat. It's like the whole thing of the movie is the uh, that he's afraid and he's afraid and as he's afraid and he learns to overcome his fear and that's fine. But like even late in the movie when Spot spots another person who's like him and Arrow's like, no, come with me. It's like, you're still being selfish. We have like 10 minutes left in this movie. Get over it. Come on. But like, yeah, I, I do feel his growth is a bit accelerated and, and unearned because we spend a lot of the film showing him to be skittish and afraid mm. and all of a sudden he confronts his fears and he's an action hero yeah. which kind of works in some ways in up but you do get the sense in up that he's able but not willing and this is just him doing a complete 360 all of a sudden in the space of maybe one scene yeah so again quite generic as we noted at the top of the podcast guard the good dinosaur is considered to be pixar's first flop bringing to an end a run of 15 straight hits over a period of 20 years a remarkable run to pixar's credit it was it was always going to happen eventually and as you mentioned they kind of brought it on themselves both for releasing two films in a year which kind of set up the good dinosaur to fail but also like they had the run of brave and monsters university and cars 2 which were like weren't great and kind of not quite ruined the pixar name but they did like it made pixar movies go from like these things you absolutely had to see to uh you know i'll check the reviews first 
It's like unmissable to skippable. Yeah. And like, fair enough, Inside Out is one of their best movies. It was released earlier in the year and it was a, a big financial success. But even then, it is, as I said, it just goes to, you know what, I'll see what the critics say. You know, is, is it any good? We'll see. I do remember the critical landscape for this film being very unfortunate mm. because before I even saw this film, there was, a, you know, I, well, I chose not to see it in cinemas, possibly due to the critics' words because there was a lot of negativity around this film. And I think that, you know, a lot of the critical conclusions were like, is this going to be Pixar's first flop and then it, it was so I think while self-fulfilling prophecy a little a little bit obviously the content of the film drove that as well but I do think the negative I suppose as we go into the the mid to late noughties into the the tens now people tend to with the availability of the internet on their phones they gravitate towards looking at what, about what people say about films before they'll make up their mind to see them well people always did that Come I suppose on. they always did that but they it, checked the newspaper to see what the reviews were they listened to the radio this isn't new I suppose it's more ubiquitous but it's unavailable is what I meant. You, know? you get bad opinions that might be amplified. That's the only difference. But but like before this film came out, there was a lot of negative buzz over it. I think that might have affected it because Pixar should have had enough juice left for people to see this film at least. But people didn't seem interested. What do you think that is, Kerr? I think even trailers, like what what is there to highlight about this movie that you should go see? Like if you were to say, what's the one thing you need to see about this movie? It's how pretty it is. You can see that in the trailers. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, it's pretty. You know, just watch the trailer and you'll see it's pretty. The rest of it is completely inessential. Like, maybe if you're like, as I said, the ideal audience for this movie is a six-year-old who has seen none of the movies this movie is ripping off. And then maybe it might work for them. Otherwise, us sitting here watching our 16th Pixar film after watching 50-odd whatever Disney films, we're like, oh yeah, there's that from The Lion King, that from The Jungle Book, and that from Alice in Wonderland. And there's nothing there that's new or fresh and original that makes you think, oh geez, I have to go see this. Because at the end of the day... For the most part, kids that go see animated movies do not make the decision about what animated movies they want to see. They might, they might pester their parents. But usually parents are like, oh, that one. So if they read it wasn't very good, they were going to skip it. Mm. Only pandemic-affected movies like Onward and Soul have grossed less upon release. It remains the least attended Pixar film to receive a full theatrical run to date. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's their Black Cauldron. It's, and it's, just like the Black Cauldron, it's perfectly okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing like my main takeaway was when I watched it at the time and I watched it again there's nothing offensive about this movie I wouldn't say I enjoyed it but it's a very watchable film there's nothing yeah it's just like the fact that B-tier Pixar is better than most movies like the worst of Pixar is still better than a lot of movies like this is a perfectly well-made competently told story that is like it's it's a six out of ten you know from a studio that makes nines and tens maybe five out of ten but either way, it, it's certainly no lower than five. And like five is a perfectly average middle of the road movie. And when you come to expect more, anything else is just going to seem disappointing. So I think Pixar, maybe through the last 20 years before this, had set themselves up for when they had a flop. It was going to be big because expectations are at a high. And then confidence was shaken with a run of mediocre films that still made money. I, I don't think they saw the signs and they walked into this. Yeah, it's no Saludos Amigos. It's no <laughs> Aristocats. It's been a while since I buried the Aristocats. Yes. It's, it's nowhere near as bad as the worst of Disney movies. Like, if this were a Disney film, it would fall perfectly, like, in the middle of the quality of Disney films. And it's the worst... Is it the worst Pixar movie? No, Cars is worse than this. Cars 2. Cars 2, for sure. But it's down there. Not in terms of, like, as you said, like, I'm, I'm not openly offended or I didn't feel like they were jaded making this movie. I think they had the best of intentions. It's just... They rebooted it too many times so that it became a bl- mushy blob of nothing. All right, Magic Mammoths, it's nearly time for us to be consigned to prehistory. Sadly, we don't have a song from resident Magic by Design singer Nicole this week. 
do, 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 do. There you go. We're on a run of songless Pixar films, but I have double-checked and there is a song featured in Finding Dory, albeit in the credits. So Nicole will be back with her unique take on that tune next week. She should just sing Just Keep Swimming for like three straight minutes. It's like, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. New episodes of Magic by Design land every Monday where all magical podcasts are downloaded. Stop by our website at magicbydesign.buzzsprout.com to find a full list of podcast platforms. We are everywhere you'd care to look. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, you name it, we're there. So make sure to subscribe wherever you got your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Keep up with all the latest from Magic by Design by following us on social media, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash magic by design pod, on Twitter at magic design pod, and on Instagram at magic by design pod. If you enjoy the show and want to let all your friends know how cool you are for listening to this little known animation podcast, please do use that big brain of yours to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you don't give us a positive review, we will make you watch The Good Dinosaur every day for the rest of your life. Oh no. Actually, you know what? That's not the worst. <laughs> it's not the worst sentence, to be fair. Also, ni hao to all our sudden new listeners in China, if in fact you are real people. Oh yeah, we got a bunch of listeners from China and Brazil, which we think are bots, but might be people. But if you're people, hello! Hi, China. Maybe you're learning all about Disney from us, two dopey Irish guys. Or maybe they're learning English, God help them. Oh god, someone out there in China is going to have a weird neutral Irish accent. Next week, we'll be breaking down Pixar's 17th animated feature, the aforementioned Finding Dory. So be sure to keep an eye out for that in your podcasting feeds. But until then, stay safe and remember, you can't get... Get rid of fear. It's like Mother Nature. You can't beat her or outrun her, but you can get through it. You can find out what you're made of. Oh, so there was a quote. Well done. Yeah, I got one. I sifted through all the nothing to get a quote for you guys this week. Ah! It's my favorite quote. <laughs> Which one, Gart? Yeah. You'll have to work it out. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Bye.